0: Hello, and welcome to Health Yeah! Brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, promoting health and preventing disease. You can find more information about NACDD at chronicdisease.org. As always, I'm Joseph Rhodes, your friendly podcast producer. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Health Yeah! We've got another great episode. I hope you've enjoyed the episodes in the past and this one as well. Today's special guest is Whitney Hammond. Whitney Hammond is the chronic disease director for New Hampshire, and she talks to Paige about the process that defines her research and how it integrates into chronic disease directors. So let's get to the interview.
1: I am very pleased to have with uh, with me today for the Health Yeah! podcast, Whitney Hammond. She is a chronic disease director with the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services, and Whitney uh, is particularly uh, a leader in the area of of cancer in New Hampshire. We're really happy to have her joining us today to talk a little bit about um, some of the recent uh, news and research findings that have been going on in cancer in her state, and hear a little bit about some of the innovative work that they are doing uh, in tandem to that. So welcome, Whitney. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. So, I know that New Hampshire has been in the news lately regarding some recent cancer findings. Could you tell me a little bit about what some of the concerns were and a little bit about the the limitations of the study as well?
2: Sure. Um, So, just recently, the CDC, there were um, a handful of researchers at the CDC that worked to do a comparison of rates of pediatric cancers just across the the entire country. Um, The result of that was that they published an article in MMWR, and then um, the findings of that were that New Hampshire had the highest rate of all pediatric cancers in the country. This hit at the same time that we've had a lot of attention sort of at the state level um, around cancer rates among children in specific areas where there's a known exposure to PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances or PFAS. So in New Hampshire we have, um, there's one area in the seacoast where there was uh, exposure to PFAS from a Department of Defense site, and then another area in the southern part of New Hampshire that has this exposure from a manufacturer. And so there have been a lot of concerns from uh, parents and from legislators in those areas about what are the potential health impacts uh, related to those contaminants and really specifically how is consumption of water that has PFAS going to impact children who may have consumed it. There's also just been, related to to those same exposures, a lot of concern around other cancers where New Hampshire tends to be one of the states with the highest rates. So an example of that is breast cancer. we were among the sort of top states for breast cancer rates.
1: So given all of these, you know, recent studies and, and findings, you know, these are just studies. They have limitations. Tell me about the reality of the situation on the ground there in New Hampshire. Sure.
2: So the reality is that cancer is in fact the leading cause of disease-related death among children in New Hampshire. And when you think about the, when we look at causes of death overall, you know, not just among children, uh, cancer is also the leading cause of death among adults. But the trend in new diagnoses for children getting cancer has actually remained stable in New Hampshire. So from 2011 to 2015 it's been stable. We're we're a pretty tiny state. We have 1.3 million people. And so um, what that looks like in terms of children and the numbers that get diagnosed per year with cancer, we average about 63 children that get a, a diagnosis per year. When you look at our rates of cancer uh, compared to the U.S., it's actually the same. So there's not um, an actual statistically significant difference um, in our rates. And when you look at actually the older kids, uh, so those who are age 15 to 20, which are still considered pediatric, you actually see that New Hampshire is lower than the U.S. rate. And then uh, in terms of public health, we're largely focused on uh, treatment um, and survival for pediatric cancers where we don't know much about what the causes and risk factors are and so treatment uh, we've been seeing really dramatic improvements in uh, outcomes related to treatment over the last few decades so 83 percent of children are surviving at least five years after their diagnosis and the rates of children actually passing away from cancer has have been reducing dramatically so From that same time period, 2011 to 2015, we've seen a decrease of nine percentage points in the um, rates of mortality. So the picture is, you know, when you look at us compared to the rest of the country, we're not terribly different. Um, And actually, in terms of the sort of treatment and outcomes of kids who are diagnosed, things are actually moving
1: in a pretty positive direction. That can be a a real challenge for working in a state health department is, is sort of having you know, with an issue that's as, as difficult and as worrying as pediatric cancer certainly is, that can be a, a tough hill to climb to sort of help all of the stakeholders understand what's going on on the ground versus what certain studies are telling us and, and how, how capable they are of, of mirroring what's going on the ground. And in fact, isn't it true, New Hampshire has one of the highest pediatric cancer survival rates in the country.
2: Yeah, that's true. And I think the other thing that Tricky when we're talking about pediatric cancers, and and I and I get sort of in this way of thinking as well is pediatric is really just a word to describe the age the group age that group. the cancers are diagnosed in. So that's mm-hmm. um any anybody diagnosed at age 19 and under, and so when you start to look at well what types of cancers are these pediatric cancers, that's when you can start to see oh well um you know in New Hampshire there is a really high rate of melanoma, and you can start to think about Okay, well, so for melanoma, we know there are certain risk factors like fair skin, um, being white non-Hispanic, exposure to ultraviolet light versus in another state, you might see a higher rate of something like a brain cancer or um, lymphomas, which maybe has other risk factors. So, I think the idea of just combining all cancers diagnosed in children makes it really difficult for the sort of health department to think about (coughs) what strategies are important to use to be able to, you know, prevent these cancers or to be able to, um, you know, help children who are diagnosed with those cancers.
1: And that's a great point. Is that you know, oftentimes it's it's a it's a function of the the state health department being able and positioned to identify in a trend that's starting to emerge, and to put into place some of the resources that need to be there when um, certain kinds of conditions are preventable, and and some cancers aren't preventable, um, as we know. So that's a good, I think, um, distinction to be making about the role of a a chronic disease department um, in the larger context of these kinds of health issues. And one of the things you guys have been doing in particular that's been very innovative has been your use of your cancer registry. Tell me a little bit more about that and how that plays into this larger dynamic that you're dealing with.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, you know, a lot of this, the attention that I talked about earlier and the concerns from the community about the PFAS exposure have really sort of pushed us to be innovative. Um, and so, you know, that's been a sort of good outcome of people, you know, th- this heightened concern. Um, so, we've worked really hard at the health department. We've um, looked at our cancer cluster protocol, so that's how we respond when, you know, either an individual calls us and says they think that they're seeing a lot of different, you know cases of cancer in their community or at the place where they work, or oftentimes we hear from um, legislators where they've heard from their constituents about um, you know a number of cancers in a certain area. So we've worked really hard um, in, internally and with our partners to revise that the way the protocol and the way that we respond based on, things that we've learned in the past few years. Um, We've also uh, gone ahead and created a dedicated position here that's focused on responding to these concerns so that we have just one person who really has a a good skill set and a good understanding of cancer data, uh, and also just community response. So two years ago, we responded to a concern in the Seacoast area. So that's one of those areas with the PFAS um, exposure um, in response to concerns about two types of pediatric cancers that community members felt like they were seeing more kids diagnosed with. So we worked to do an analysis looking at the rates of those cancers in that area compared to the rest of the state. Following that calculation, we produced a written report summarizing our findings, and then really the, the the bulk of our work was from that point on. Uh, so we had to engage community members. We convened what we called our community advisory group, and they really helped us to think about our next steps and to be able to understand what the concerns were in that community, sort of regardless of what that analysis had found. And so um, what we ended up doing was called a case series where you we developed a protocol and developed a survey tool and then did a lot of outreach through our state cancer registry as well as our neighboring state cancer registries, so that was Massachusetts and Maine and Vermont. And we actually sent the survey to anybody who had been diagnosed with either of the two pediatric cancers that were of concern. And the idea behind that was to cast the widest possible net. The Seacoast area in New Hampshire, while it's not terribly large, is a pretty big destination for um, vacationers. And so the community was particularly concerned about not just narrowly focusing on people who had a residence in that area, but being able to get a sense of, you know, maybe somebody has a summer home in that area, and so they're spending two or four months a year in that area. And so we really did our best to be able to reach all of those individuals who may have had a certain level of time spent in that area. And we were able to then survey them to be able to look at, you know, was there a common source of water? Was there a common beach that people went to? Not to be able to really answer the question of whether that exposure led to a particular cancer, but to be able to understand if there was really anything in common between the the different children. And so the result of that was that we were able to, you know, say, among those people who responded to the survey, there wasn't a common environmental exposure. There wasn't one place where they were getting water or one school that they all attended. And so in some ways that wasn't helpful to the community as if we'd been able to sort of point to something that they did have in common, but it did at least shed light on that. Some of those concerns that community members had about a particular beach or a particular water source weren't sort of clearly identified. The other thing that we're doing uh, in New Hampshire is we're working very closely with our state legislature um, and people from, so we have the University of New Hampshire and uh, Dartmouth College, and both, both of those universities as well as the legislature have been working with us to really explore ways to link data So um, while the health department has the state uh, cancer registry, the University of New Hampshire is sort of responsible for overseeing our all-payer claims database, which has claims data from commercial, Medicaid, Medicare, um, and self-insured entities. And we're looking at ways to be able to connect that data with our cancer registry data to be able to connect those two data sets with data from our Department of Environmental Services, which is the agency in New Hampshire that's responsible for sort of monitoring environmental contaminants. And the idea behind that is to just think about ways that we might be able to better look at. Uh, Okay, if an individual is diagnosed with a cancer, can we look at the all-payer claims database and get some sense of residential history, which we don't get from the cancer registry? At At this time, the cancer registry collects data from the hospital intake, so it's the person's current residential address when they're diagnosed with cancer. So if we can connect um, residential history with the cancer registry and know that a person's been diagnosed, and then be able to look at some of our environmental data, Again, while we can't answer the question of you know whether any kind of exposure caused a cancer, we can get a better picture of whether there was any kind of commonality or overlap or association between um, an environmental contaminant and a cancer. So that's been an, a, a recent, you know, a, a, an outcome from all of this community concern that I think, you know, has, has led to some really good work on our part um, and thinking beyond just the tried and true surveillance that the health department has done in the past, where we sort of do data briefs and look at the, the rates of cancers in different areas. It's really pushed us to expand.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad for our other members with the National Association of Crime Disease Directors to hear this great example of a way that you're leveraging different stakeholders to address a problem that traditionally would have been viewed as just a state health department problem, right? Like, what are you, you know, what? What are you guys doing um, when really it's a larger effort that needs to involve more people and more information than necessarily something that you would you would collect as part of your mandate with the state health department? And I think that's a great lesson learned for um, for our members. It's also interesting to point out that some, sometimes one of the most effective ways of addressing stakeholder or constituent concern is if you don't know what is causing it, being able to tell them what isn't the case. yeah, And then helping, to, helping community leaders communicate that well to constituents is also very important. So another great lesson learned from, from the case of New Hampshire is really based on the data that you have and, and the complexity of the problem. Even if it's not possible to say, here's the answer, it is possible to say, here are things we don't need to worry about. Here's ways we can, you know, reassign resources or here are ways we can uh, address uh, constituent concern by letting them know that these are things you do not need to be worried about. Um, in other words not all the children had drank from the same uh, soda or water fountain at school and that's what caused it. But that it, it seemed to be a much more broad and, and complex issue. And, and of course in cases like cancer that, that can be a difficult message to communicate and I wondered if you would speak a little bit about um, some of the lessons you've learned in communicating this in particular to your constituencies and to your stakeholders in the context of national news. That can be very tricky to do yeah we've learned a
2: lot along the way. Um, so I think what you were just talking about has been probably our biggest lesson is um, it, <laughs> be quick with your response and obviously, at the health department and being a part of a big state agency, that can be a really big challenge, you know, running through your um, public information office and getting everybody on board with the communication. Um, but we've learned just as quickly as you can um, get a message out there. And what we really got stuck on initially was we wanted to wait to to do any kind of communication or to respond to concerns until we felt like we had an answer. And what we learned was that it was okay to say, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. And it was much more important to be just quick and forthcoming with that information because the longer it took for us to get a message out, the the sort of more – other messages were able to get out and, and to really raise people's concerns. Um, other things we learned were um, working directly with leaders in the communities. So whether that's town officials or legislators or even the families of children who have been diagnosed. So along the way, we've really had to work to engage all of those partners. And in particular, I, you know, I think one of the things we've learned the most about is How do you uh, sort of negotiate with the families of children impacted and, you know, some of them may want to be very involved while others are really, you know, at a point in, in their lives where they need to protect themselves from being involved in, you know, that kind of a public conversation about cancer. So um, that was a big learning lesson to use, you know, a number of different forums. So not just the community advisory group, but engaging those individuals one-on-one. The other thing is just to understand that it's an extremely emotional topic um, for those who have been affected or are concerned that they might be affected. And so to operate in that environment where you understand that people aren't going to really, because of the heightened emotional concern, they may struggle to understand some of the nuances of the communication. So I think we found ourselves on a couple different occasions saying, well, we put that information in a report and we said it in this community meeting, and it's just important to remember that, you know, as simple as you can be about the communication and as many times as you can say it and in as many different sort of forums or formats is important. The other thing is just that communication has to be two-way. So as as important as it is for us to get our message out about, you know, here's what the data shows us and here's what we know and here's what we don't know, it's equally if not more important for us to just take the time to hear what people are concerned about. Because a lot of times we're just a little bit off the mark, you know, in terms of, um, if we talk about, oh, well, it's not the water supply and somebody says, well, no, it's this power plant that's really concerning me. So if we don't take the time to really elicit those concerns, we can just be, you know, sharing information that's not helpful. So another thing that we really learned was as public health professionals, it, we, we, I think we just have such a temptation to lean heavy on explaining surveillance data and looking at literature reviews and saying, you know, There's no evidence to support this or the trend is in this way and feeling like it's this sort of black and white thing to look at data and to look at science and say, you know, there's nothing in the science or the data that points to this. But sometimes that's not what the public really needs from us in terms of a service. And what they really need is that softer side of us helping to build partnerships and to be the convener and to just help have that conversation at a community level. And so they're not always looking for what I think is our default of here's data, here's science. Um, And then the last thing, and I think you touched on this too, is absolutely focus on what can be done. So while we may not know everything about what's causing a certain cancer, we can talk about cancer prevention in general and things people can do just sort of proactively if they're concerned about the quality of their water. You know, so to not just always say, oh, it's not the water that's causing this, but to really provide information so people can take action.
1: They're all really great uh, lessons to be shared, and I'm sure that in, in some ways they're hard. Some of them are harder ones than others, and just to dial back to a couple of key points that I, I want to be sure that our audience uh, has been clued into. So the first is actually in crisis communications, we learn this rule maybe first among all, which is, you know, if, if if you don't have information, it doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't communicate. Or to phrase it another way, it's okay to communicate you don't have information. But it's important to communicate in the context of the things that you're actively doing to get that information. People don't like to hear silence when they're really concerned uh, about an issue. And the other thing that is um, a great uh, quote that I heard a long time ago is actually from Teddy Roosevelt. He said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So. Uh, that also dials into using the softer side of an approach to communicate about something. So as you said, rather than saying things like, well, the science doesn't support that, or didn't you see we put that in this paper we just gave you? It's really important to use use those empathetics and soft skills that it sounds like you guys did very well to say, here's that information again. Or, you know, what we're really looking at is, so far in all our research, we haven't found that to be the case, but here's where we're really honing in on it. Here's what we're looking at. So finding softer ways to convey that information is really critical, as you said. And I think the last thing I want our audience to hear from, the, from, from all the great information that you shared is that it's sort of a continuing process. The needs of your constituents may change as more information becomes available. And some people may be very interested in in getting more actively involved and then others may choose not to or may choose to to become less involved in in working closely with the state because they are starting to get more enmeshed in their own uh, concerns about the issue. And so not having a single plan that'll that'll take you the whole way but really taking the time as you guys did to to meet as often as you could with the stakeholders to really understand their concerns what were their real concerns not assumed concerns and then how would those things maybe change once more information became available that's that's really critical too in situations like this where it's such a high emotional uh emotional topic i'm wondering if you have any just sort of general advice for states that kind of find themselves in a situation where there is a new story out there that isn't exactly, you know, re- reflective of the reality on the ground. What would be maybe your single best advice for, for your fellow chronic disease directors who may face that situation? If you could encapsulate it into one bullet point, maybe. My advice would be
2: To take the opportunity, you know, any opportunity where information is getting out that sort of is going to raise people's awareness and attention to what it is we do at public health and what it is that we're focused on. You know, so in my case, chronic disease, take that opportunity and try and as much as possible sort of pivot with it um, and take advantage of it as, as this time when people's attention is really going to be, focused on the stuff that we do, which oftentimes isn't in the public view and as best you can try and provide good, clear sort of information, whether it's counter to what's been published or to just really focus on, you know, maybe it's not about discussing that, you know, such and such article is um, sort of technically not accurate in terms of, you know, what it's saying, but to be able to highlight, um, here's what what strategies we know do help with Um, whether it's preventing cancer or reducing risk or improving access to treatment so in the case of this article where there was increased awareness about pediatric cancers it's really offered an opportunity where we're being able to share the the good work that we've already got underway around increasing um, access to clinical trials and enrollments you know so that's something we've done for a a very long time with our cancer centers you know really worked to improve that um, enrollment As well as working with pediatricians on survivorship care guidelines. So we've taken this opportunity and we've we've had calls with our federal delegation and really been able to highlight the work that we're funded to do through the CDC and that we're doing that's having an impact on moving that trend around survivorship and then even quality of life for these children who are diagnosed. So again, I just, I think, take advantage of having an opportunity to have a message get out there um, and don't focus so much on sort of the technical corrections within an article.
1: That's some really great advice, and I would just add to that to reach out to your, you know, as you are able to and as is uh, appropriate, reach out to your professional association, your National Association of Chronic Disease Director, and and your peers who who might be able to assist you um, with getting your message out to help counter some misinformation that's out there or um, even just to get emotional support as it could probably be a pretty stressful experience to go through on an issue like pediatric cancer. So definitely uh, where you can and where it's appropriate for you to do so, don't forget that you have a a community of peers who is ready uh, and able to support you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation? Yes, two things. So
2: one is I just wanted to highlight, um, that while we're, we're really thrilled and happy that we get support from the CDC through our cooperative agreement for cancer prevention and control, and we work really hard to implement those tried and true strategies that I sort of talked about around cancer prevention and control, the things we know work. So for example, we run our free cancer screening program, we do our state cancer registry, which has all this valuable data. The cooperative agreement, like Many others from CDC, so for cancer and many other chronic disease, those are somewhat prescriptive um, with regard to the strategies and also how you use the funding. You know, if there's specific funding for the free cancer screening program, and that's separate from the cancer registry. And I just think as environmental health continues to be this emerging concern and issue in every state, not just New Hampshire, it will be important for us um, as state health departments to have access to funding opportunities that will really allow us to test innovative approaches to address what our local priorities and concerns are. So I know not every state is going to have a particular concern around PFAS exposure, but I think there will be some sort of environmental health issue of interest. And I just think the more we as a group, the chronic disease directors, can think about being coordinated and communicating that message to decision makers, whether it's our state uh, legislature or the federal level, the better informed they can be about, you know, thinking through how they allocate funds and support us in and being able to respond to our constituents. So that was one thing I wanted to add. And then just to echo what you had said, I had had wanted to highlight that working with organizations such as National Association of Chronic Disease Directors and other state health departments has been enormously helpful in our cancer prevention and control activities in general, but also in, you know, responding to these kinds of community concerns and it's been through working with peers and colleagues that we've really <laughs> been able to borrow materials, learn what they've gone through, and to get that kind of support and ongoing encouragement. So. I absolutely would encourage anybody who finds themselves in a situation trying to respond to a community concern like this to reach out to, whether it's New Hampshire or their neighboring states, because I think we're all learning as we uh, continue to respond to these concerns.
1: I think that's a a great place to leave it on, and um, I do want to thank you, Whitney, for Really sharing this experience with us so that all of our members can learn a little bit more um, about this important topic of how to address, you know, a a sensitive public health issue that's become a a national story and, and certainly the stuff that's going on in New Hampshire in terms of of all the innovative work that you've been doing to work with stakeholders and to identify you know, and use of your cancer registries, your case stories, all of that uh, definitely deserves to be heard and be put out there as well. So we really thank you for for your time and and sharing all this great uh, best practice information with us. Thank
2: you. Uh, It's great to be able to have the chance to share what is going on in New Hampshire to potentially help other states.
1: Well, we'll say keep fighting the good fight, and we look forward to hearing more from you as as you guys have more information to share on this or any other topic that you'd like to. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's where we'll leave the podcast for today. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Whitney Hammond, with the New Hampshire Department of Health. We hope that you'll check out the rest of our Healthier Podcasts at chronicdisease.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Whitney.
0: What a great interview. And I think the work that they are doing is really, really important. If you'd like to know more information, you can go to www.nhcancerplan.org. And they've got a lot of resources on there that you can check out. Also, if you want to know more information about NACDD and health, yeah, go to www.chronicdisease.org. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Health Yeah! I hope you found it informative and entertaining like I did. On behalf of NACDD, thank you very much for listening.